Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. In this episode, Morgan Wack and me, Nicholas Wichduck, speak to Mark Smith about reforming democratic institutions in the United States and abroad. Mark Smith is professor of political science at the University of Washington and author of multiple books concerning political culture in the United States. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks for having me. Of course. Today, we're going to dig into issues of democracy, both here and abroad. And we know that you've been doing a lot of work specifically on diagnosing issues and digging into specific potential solutions. So could you give us a brief overview of what you see as the primary challenges democracy faces today? A lot of them, for sure, um, both in the U.S. and uh, elsewhere, wherever we have democratic institutions, people seem pretty dissatisfied with big parts of how the political systems are operating under countries that we call, quote, democratic, uh, ranging from the choices that are available to the media environment in which people are getting information to, uh, you know, how their votes are, are counted, how often elections are held, whether the politicians after they're elected are actually responsive to what the people want. So are the politicians doing the bidding of the supposed voters or are they doing the bidding of somebody else? You know, they're benefiting themselves, are they benefiting special interests? Are they benefiting, you know, a narrow segment of society, you know, the the 1% or something similar to that? Um, So uh, there's been a big loss of trust in institutions. you know, the media, the politics, break out, break out politics, you know, the executive branch, the judicial branch, the legislative branch, they've, they've all taken a, a hit to varying uh, degrees. And um, so there's just a lot of dissatisfaction out there with how democracy is working. Mark, would you say those are problems that are unique to the present moment? Are they constant issues of democratic governance? Or has the United States, for example, undergone similar phases previously where uh, people were dissatisfied with the way that the institutions are working? Yeah, certainly. Uh, and as soon as you break apart you know, people, it, it, it becomes a bigger challenge because obviously not everyone's going to think the same way. If you're, uh, you know, if you're, if you're African-American um, for most of American history, you're, you're not going to think the, the system's working too well. If you're, uh, if you're a woman for most of American history, you're not going to think the system is, is working um, too well. So there's always um, you know, challenges of some, some sort that are affecting different parts of the population uh, differently. But, but having said that, if you look at certain indicators, like I, I mentioned earlier, the kind of trust in institutions kind of, um, kind, of, kind of measures where you can just ask people like how much trust and confidence do you have in these different institutions in society, some of which are, are, are kind of not direct, explicitly political. Like you can ask people, you know, how much trust do you have in, you know, doctors or the medical system? How much trust and confidence do you have in, you know, big business or in, in labor unions that have a political dimension, but those institutions are not, you know, specifically part of the government. And then if you ask about, you know, the, uh, the Congress or the, or the presidency or, 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 or the Supreme Court or the media institutions that are more explicitly political, you see a pretty big drop over the last few decades. And uh, with some of these, like the media, you know, confidence is, is, is in the toilet. 
Um, Congress confidence is in the toilet. With with the president, it, it varies a, a little more, but in part because there's always whatever party's in power, like you know, whichever people identify with that party, they're going to tend to rate the, the president at least more more highly than some of those other institutions. But we have seen that broad uh, decline more recently. You know, the the police as an important governmental institution has has seen a big big decline in confidence. Um, so yeah, even though there have always been some sorts of of problems with democratic governance, I think the amount of dissatisfaction right now is higher than at least in the last few decades. So one of the, I wouldn't say prescriptions, but one of the major aspects of democracy throughout American history and history in kind of the Greek Athenian sense and in the history of democracy itself has been about deliberation and kind of fostering trust and legitimacy in the system through discussions, through debates about the best aspects of a particular system or the most ideal aspects of a particular system. And you've discussed this in your research and on your podcast experiences in the past. Could you maybe talk us through how you see deliberation playing a role in democracy? Is it central to, is it synonymous with democracy? Um, and how you see d- deliberation in American democracy, democracy today versus any time in, the, in the, the recent past? Sure. I would say that deliberation is central to any functioning um, democracy in that if you just take the, the roots of the word, it, it basically translates to, you know, rule by the people. All right. Sounds great. Yeah, yeah, we should have rule by the people. Well, does that just mean you go to all the people and say, well, hey, what do you want? Well, how do you even manage such a process? Do the people know what they want? Um, whoever gets to ask the question, like, well, what do you think of this particular proposal? Well, whoever constructed the proposal has what we call agenda setting power, just by nature, be able to construct the alternatives. You can you can often affect uh, the outcomes. Uh, and so rule by the people sounds great until you try to then figure out, well, how are we going to do this? And, and if you're actually going to do it, you're going to want more than just the raw passions that people happen to hold at the moment. You're going to want them to, to think, to interact with other people, to uh, have some reflection, to have some engagement, to um, you know respond appropriately to to information. And so, if you have de- democracy without a mechanism to facilitate deliberation, well, you're not going to end up with something that's very desirable. And whatever you end up with is probably going to be very vulnerable to being essentially hacked by some sort of strongman, a, a demagogue who comes on the scene and says, I am the will of the people and, and accumulates you know, power in, in himself, um, supposedly representing the people, but not really representing the people because there was never any broad discussion so that we could even really cultivate what do the people really want. Uh, and so I would say that for democracy to be worth anything, there has to be deliberation. And that sort of the position of the movement of deliberative democracy, how does that differ from democracy uh, by itself? Like if you say that those two things are inseparable, um, how come there is such a thing as a movement for deliberative democracy then? Right. Well, um, partly because, you know, the term democracy is what we often call like a contested term. So it, Mm. it means different things. You know, classically in, say, ancient Athens, it meant citizens, which, of course, was a small percentage of the population. But if you are, you know, like a, a male, uh, you know, property holder born, born, born there, um, you would be uh, um, eligible to be uh, part of that. And people would meet face to face and actually make decisions. 
And uh, the deliberation in principle could happen through that meeting. So different people could have the floor and make the case for what they think we should do. You know, should we go to war with Sparta or, or whatever? Then someone else could come in and, and, and make their case. And um, you could have some of this discussion happening on a, on a face-to-face level. And, you know, classically, that's what, what democracy uh, meant. But over the last, you know, few centuries, it, it came to mean what we sometimes use as an adjective representative democracy. Mm-hmm. So that rather than people directly making decisions, um, sometimes called quote, direct democracy, instead with representative democracy, the people elect representatives who then make decisions. And, and then, but we still call that democracy. You know, some people, you know, a purist might say, well, that's not actually democracy. Like, you know, that's a republic or something else. But if somebody wants to have that fight, I would say you've probably already lost that fight because people will call what we have democracy even though it's nothing like ancient ancient Athens. So I would say that if you uh, take what we have, you know, a representative democracy, it can still be either more deliberative or less deliberative. And there's a lot of ways in which, as currently constituted, it's not very deliberative. And then there's also a lot of ways you can make it more deliberative. And so I, I think, a, you know, representative democracy can be, can exist in a lot of different ways. And there are ways to make it more deliberative or less deliberative. Yeah, that's great. So let's let's focus in on the United States in particular for a moment. You mentioned that there are certainly gaps in how deliberative our democracy is, um, and you mentioned the tendency toward demagoguery that can occur as a potential negative or downside of not having enough deliberation. What would you say are the greatest areas for improvement, and how does this relate to kind of the current moment in time where we have this mass spanning of media, these new sources? Shouldn't this be the ideal setting for more deliberative democracy? Shouldn't this be kind of a high point in democracy in that way? Yeah, it seems like it could be because certainly information is easier to acquire than ever before. For one thing, it's generally free. I mean, uh, e- even you know large large news uh, outlets. It used to be they would you know charge for their for, for their product, but now you can generally get it for free. I mean, cable stations. Like I guess you have to have a cable subscription, but you know any any like major newspaper newspaper. There, you know you don't have to actually get the print edition. You can get it online, and then there's a ton of online only um, sources. And then meanwhile. You know, when, when I was a little kid, um, it was a pretty common kind of middle class thing to do for parents at some point to get their kids an encyclopedia set. So I'm, I'm quite a bit older than both of you, probably a little less than twice as old. So I suspect, um, and actually, and Nicholas uh, grew up in Germany anyway. I don't know if that was the case there, but Morgan at least uh, grew up here. But I, I suspect by the time you were a little kid, that that was gone. Like the, we the did have an encyclopedia at home. Oh, I remember did? that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Did you get it as as a gift at some point? Oh no, no, no I didn't. I, I'm assuming my father did. Probably, actually. So All right. Was... He probably just still had it by the time you yeah. were. Okay. Well, um, encyclopedias used to be a big thing, and they were really expensive because there were these you know bound volumes, and you they would like would like take up a whole shelf. And, uh, you know, the way it worked, at least in my house, was um, it seemed like we got like one or two each year. So like the first year, you've got the A, actually <laughs> you got the B, um, and eventually you get all the way to C. But um, the upshot of this is it was incredibly expensive. But today, that's what Wikipedia is. 
Mm. Wicked. And, and there's been, you know, research done to try to, you know, compare like is, is traditional like Encyclopedia Britannica or World Book Encyclopedia, you know, are those more accurate than Wikipedia? And the general answer is no. And, and Wikipedia also has far, far better coverage. So this, this ritual that existed in, in, in middle-class um, homes, at least in America, when I was a kid, like that's just, there's no, there's no point in that mm. uh, anymore. And so coming back to Morgan's uh, po- uh, point, you would think that information is so, so much more accessible now. Wouldn't that mean that we make better decisions, right? Because, you know, rather than just a, a select few being able to, you know, afford these encyclopedias and, to, you know, read them, not to mention other paid news sources. Now it's, it's generally free. And so uh, shouldn't that make uh, information easier to acquire? Right. So if you think that more deliberation would make democratic institutions healthier, how would you go about doing that practically? Are there prototypical deliberative institutions that could be um, integrated into the United States political institutional system, for example? Yeah, for sure. And there are some of them out there all, all, already. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of, lot of challenges um, to overcome. One of those challenge is, challenges is that a lot of people aren't all that interested in politics. And so um, one, of the, one of the biggest changes of the last few decades is that people have, have uh, polarized not just in their sort of values and ideology. We're very familiar with that kind of polarization. They've also polarized in the extent to which they pay attention to politics at all. Really so there's, there's this a research by this uh, communication scholar named Marcus, Marcus Pryor. And what, what he showed was that uh, back in the uh, era, um, you know, b- before you guys were, were born, when I, when I was a little kid, from, from say like the 1960s to about the 1990s, before the real spread of, of say uh, cable television, there was, uh, you know, in, in the US, three major networks and you got local news at six o'clock and you got national news at 6.30. At least I, that's what I remember. The, the, the times could be off. But the point is there was a certain time where you go to CBS, local news. You're like, I don't want to watch news. I want to watch, you know, Andy Griffith or, uh, you know, Three's mm. Company or, or uh, you know, All of the Family or something like that. You're like, okay, well, I'll switch from CBS to ABC. Nope. Local mm. news there. Well, I'm going to, no, I don't want that. I'm going to go over to, you know, ABC. Nope. Um, uh, local news, local news there uh, too. And then the same thing a half hour later. So there was a, a period where if you wanted to watch TV, the only thing that was on was local news. Mm. And then there was a period where if you wanted to watch TV, the only thing that was on across all three networks was national news. So the result of this was that even if you're not all that interested in politics, politics kind of comes to you whether you want it or not. Right. So this is part of Marcus Pryor's um, argument, and he shows this pretty systematically with data. But eventually, um, you know, you get cable news, eventually you get the, the internet. Um, and it's, it's the case now that if you're not interested in politics, you just sort of try to shut it out entirely. There's a lot of people that consume essentially zero news. I mean, a little bit will creep in, like maybe it's um, you know uh, something on your on your phone that you like see a headline or something. But there, there's a lot of people for whom their their interest in politics and their news consumption is essentially zero. But then on the other side, there are a ton of news junkies. Um, if you want 24 hours politics all the all the time. Um, you know, you can get it. And, and those people get pretty worked up and a lot of them are on Twitter and they, you know, they love to attack their enemies and, you know, they're 
they're uh, you know they're arrogant and they always think they're right and uh, they're they're very good at put downs and um, you know so so politics has become more tribal in part because fewer people are, are participating like at, a, at an intense level so you have this kind of small set of, of people who are really driving the, the political debate and then there's a ton of people out there who are just not paying much attention and that's really corrosive to to democracy in that if democracy requires people to be engaged to be paying attention, to think about the issues, to consider their positions, to consider alternative positions, uh, to be open to new information and so on. Um, if it requires all those things, and yet there's a lot of people paying no attention at all, we got a problem. So if there are fewer people who are part of the conversation in, in some way, right, then um, politics be- or, or democracy becomes less deliberative, I think, um, is, is what, I'm, what I'm getting, right? Um, exactly. We spoke to uh, Professor Jake Grombach, uh, also from, from UDAP last week, uh, about the state of uh, the UN- United States democraticness as well. He was speaking also about the sort of like nationalization of the news environment, right? That everything is national news now. Local news is not so much of a thing anymore. Do you know also if people are less, I'm assuming people are less engaged in local politics, in local labor unions, in um, local political uh, infrastructure of that kind as well? Is that the case as well? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think Robert Putnam, Bowling Alone, mm. is, is the classic citation on this, where there was, uh, and, and before Putnam, you know, in the 19th century, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote, wrote about this, that, that there, were, there was a lot of what we call civil society in America. Mm. So you had um, uh, Tok- Tocqueville famously uh, noted that uh, he said that in uh, wherever in in uh, in France you would have the government running something, in England you would have a man of rank running something, in America you have an association running something. So people would get together to like you know organize charity events in their in their area or form churches or form groups to you know, build, build things and to uh, make, make social connections. And so there's this vital, vital civic life that, that Tocqueville noted that was very, uh, he thought, very distinctive to America. And that's the same thing Robert Putnam was writing about at the end of the 20th century. And, and what Putnam noticed was a big decline from, you know, kind of like a, a peak in like the 1950s and 1960s, and then a drop afterward in all kinds of things, participation in groups, um, getting together with your with your with your neighbors, you know, having having friends over for dinner, even that that decline. Um, so the, the uh, insurance company State Farm, you know, they have this uh, motto, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, and they like came up with that motto in the 1970s when everybody knows everybody knew their their neighbors. But these days, uh, people don't really know their neighbors. So at some point, they're like, maybe we need a new a new motto. So they they like conducted this uh, survey to figure out. You know what? What do you want in, in a neighbor um, these days? Because it used to be these would be people you would know and might have over for dinner. So what do you actually want in a neighbor these days? But what they found out was mostly you wanted. They don't throw beer cans around in their backyard. They don't have loud parties. You know they're not running a criminal operation out of out of their their home. But basically you don't really know them, and so it's just like just don't bother me. That's essentially what people wanted. And I think that's a perfect illustration of, of Robert Putnam's thesis of a decline of, of community, of people forming connections with, with other um, human beings. And, and, and so that, that was traditionally where a lot of, uh, of um, 
you know, discussion, deliberation, and information gathering would, would happen because, you know, you have a particular background, but maybe you go to a, a, a religious organization or you go to a, belong to a union or you have neighbors over for dinner or you belong to some kind of uh, organization in your community that organizes charity functions. So you, you interact with a variety of, of people, you learn their backgrounds, they learn your backgrounds, you, you, uh, you know, build relationships, you gather inf information. So all that has been sort of weakened over, over time. So that is this big chunk where people were sort of engaged with something beyond their, their own home has, has been undercut. And I think that's related to deliberation because, I mean, there, there, are, there are some formal ways to institute deliberation. And I think we'll probably circle around to talking about to those, uh, talking about those. But the civil, civil society was a way for this to happen informally. And, and when, when civil society declines, um, you're, just, you're, you're cutting out some of those opportunities to, to learn from other people, to uh, have that engagement. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think it's one of those things that it's very easy to kind of see in your own life. I think it's probably rings true with quite a lot of people. And one of the reasons that Putnam has kind of survived the test of time in recent years is that everyone can kind of feel that sense of isolation becoming more and more prominent year on year. And so it sounds like what you're getting at a bit is it's not just the sheer quality or quantity of information or quantity of deliberation that's declined, but it's also the platforms and the type of deliberation that has actually kind of been altered by new technologies, shifts in migration patterns, living standards, unionization, I think is a big one, which you mentioned, the ability to just meet people at work. Most people today work in specific sectors that have very specific profiles of education and living standards. And I think that's a big uh, kind of siloing of individual people and opinions uh, that we don't talk about as much. And so I'd be curious to know what you think some potential kind of improvements are. I am skeptical that we can, you know, put these things back in the box, but I am optimistic that we can use some of these new technologies and maybe the new framework we have to improve deliberation. Um, and so maybe you can talk about a few of the ones you find most appealing and that we, you think have potential here in the United States. Sure. Let me start off though with one that I think is is not uh, promising, but a lot of people think that it could be promising. Okay. Uh, so we're all aware of the problem of the echo chamber. So people have their favored, you know, news sources. They have their favored, uh, you know, social media uh, figures that they might follow, and you tend to pick people and sources that you already agree with, and then you never quote hear the other side. And so some people have claimed, like, well, wouldn't it be great if if like all the Fox News viewers all of a sudden started watching some CNN? And the CNN viewers started watching some, some, some Fox News and wh whatever you gather through social media, like get a, a, a richer set of voices out there and that somehow this is going to make people get along better and, and make better decisions. Well, there's been um, some, some research, you know, do, trying to implement this strategy where you, um, you know, get a bunch of people and, and kind of uh, set up a study so that you, they, they get the, like the regular information flows plus some other ones that are sort of selected to like get them out of the echo chambers. And uh, the basic upshot of this research is it, it doesn't work. Uh, if anything, it makes it worse sometimes. So um, um, just getting the quote information doesn't do it. And, and you know, for someone who would say Red Tocqueville or Red Putnam, um, that that, ring, that, that would ring true, that, that this proposal is just not gonna work. Because A, 
a piece of information stripped from a human being who might bring it to you. We, we just, we didn't evolve to, to work like that. So imagine if like you're a, a person, you know, in, in the quote, you know, blue tribe, um, what does people in the blue tribe think of people in the red tribe, tribe you know, Trump voters? Well, they, they don't think very highly of them. So imagine something that like a Trump voter might say, and then you just, you just get the, the, the quote or the information stripped from any actual human being. Is that going to make you like more open to that idea or is it just going to make your blood boil even more? Well, the research seems to be the latter. But now let's suppose that you actually got to know that if you're in the, the, the blue tribe, and you actually got to know that Trump voter. And OK, sure, you disagree about politics, but maybe you have some interests in common. Um, you know, sports have traditionally been a, a way to do this. Like you, you go to a ball game and who knows, maybe like, you, you know, if you're from the blue tribe, you're sitting next to a, a red tribe person and you're rooting for the game. And all of a sudden you, maybe you learn that they're a Trump voter, but now they're not, they're not just a, uh, they're, they're not just that. Like their political identity isn't their whole being. And if you've already um, gotten to know them through some other means, you know, sports, or you, you're in the same union with them, or you're uh, in, in the same religious organization, you know, a church, a synagogue, a, a, a mosque, or you've done community service with them, that you've been part of a, a group that's organized some charity, and so you, you've you've had some shared goals independent of politics, then it's a little easier for you to actually entertain it, like, well, maybe they have a certain history and a background and certain values that have led them to where they are, and even if they hold views that you don't share, at least you're not going to, like, condemn the person uh, as being like beyond the pale, because you've gotten to know them as hum a human being first. Whereas if they're just this, this um, you know, roaming, uh, humanless voice on the on the internet, you know, you, you don't you're not you're not going to have that relationship. Uh, and so just just um, having people kind of you know quote broaden their their their, their media diet um, isn't going to do much by itself to promote deliberation and to you know dampen uh, the, the temperature. Uh, so that that's that's one solution that some people talk about who don't necessarily know the extent to which this has been studied and tried, and you know that that one that one doesn't work. So let me push back a little bit on that because, or could you maybe expand on the question why is it so important that I have physical relationships, say, um, or relationships in the physical world with my neighbors, say? Why is it not a substitute to have possibly, you know, much more wide-reaching um, digital connections, right? Like, isn't that a potential corrective here that I can, I can meet so many people online? And, and it's not necessarily only about information, right? People might be um, attending the same virtual reality game, for example, or play StarCraft together. I don't know if that's still a thing. But um, you know, and, and possibly uh, get to know people from a completely different area of, of the world that they would have never met in, in, in physical reality. Um, so I, I think that that has a lot more promise because that actually does involve one-to-one -one mm. personal interactions. Whereas the things I was sort of talking about were say, uh, suppose that you get some, um, you know, left-wing people and you're like, well, you should start paying attention to what Ben Shapiro has to say. And then maybe um, you will, you know, have sort of know some of these ideas that are out there on the other side. And this will somehow like dampen polarization and make people more open to, to different ideas and so on. Um, well, in that case, you're actually not really getting to know Ben Shapiro as a person. You're just seeing his tweets. 
And, and that doesn't do anything to dampen polarization or to stimulate discourse and deliberation and, and, and conversation. But Nicholas, the kind of things you're talking about is where you, you're actually interacting with a, a person, uh, maybe because of shared interests, you know, video games or um, you know, some kind of uh, internet forum. And then they, they really are a human being at that point. And yeah, you don't have to be face-to-face -face with, with a person necessarily, but they certainly need to be something other than just a piece of information. They, they need to be something other than the mouthpiece for, for information. They, you need to have some sort of basis to connect with them um, outside of whatever they might say about, about politics. So if you have been playing video games with someone for a while and uh, you know, you've enjoyed their company and all of a sudden you learn that they have different political views than you do, well, that might make you curious. Like, well, this person's always seemed pretty reasonable to me. They have different views. Like, well, what's going on? Maybe there's the basis of a, of a conversation. I think one interesting question here is that if, you, if you're saying that a, a large chunk of American society is just not interested in politics at all, do you see this as an, over, an, an issue we can overcome and that it is up to the rest of society to deliberate and be more effective and reach broader conclusions? Or do we need to re-engage this group somehow to truly get at some sort of all-encompassing deliberative democracy? Is this group, can you function without a large portion of society being actively engaged in these decision-making processes? Let me add to this question because I think uh, the question relates. Uh, to what extent is the dissatisfaction that you were describing a result of the institutions? And thereby, you know, it would be a solution to say we need to become more deliberative, you know, to get back to a situation where people are more satisfied. Or, you know, is this more of an external uh, factor that is that is causing people to disengage because they feel like they don't really have any uh, influence over over what is happening because of things like, say, globalization or other third third variable factors that are ultimately making things uh, to be outside of their direct control? Yeah. I think that is a real problem when people feel like the world happens to them. Their voice doesn't matter. Nobody listens to what they um, have to say. So in, uh, in the political science jargon, we often call this, uh, quote, efficacy. So do, do people have a, a sense that what they do or what they think, it can make a difference? But when people have um, a, a low, what we call internal efficacy, that means they think that they themselves don't really have the tools or the knowledge or the ability to participate in politics. If they have a low external efficacy, that means they think that whatever they do isn't going to make a difference anyway. So they think the external environment is not going to respond to them. So if people feel buffeted around by, as you said, Nicholas, by globalization or, or um, you know, the, the media or the one percent or whatever it is that's sort of controlling things, that can lead them to uh, to, to to disengage. And that links back to to Morgan's question of is is there a way to get all these people who aren't paying much attention to politics, could we get them all involved? So that they are you know, talking about politics, discussing it with others, uh, participating. And, and that's a really big challenge and one that, uh, you know, I, I would almost consider that one kind of a, a, a pie in the sky sort of idea. Like it'd be great to, to do that. And I'm sure there are a lot of people with, with, with wonderful ideas. Um, but I, I think it would be useful for us to talk about some of the smaller scale ways to address some of these same problems, but don't necessarily require figuring out how do we how do we engage this large uh, chunk of uh, people who aren't paying much attention now. So you, you guys think it'd be useful to talk about some of the smaller scale 
deliberative democracy uh, reforms. Yeah, I think that would be great. I'd love to hear. I know there's, I think we want to talk about not only kind of the functionality of a few of these potential options, but also kind of the feasibility and the reasons why our democracy is so closely or so similar to forms of democracy that have existed for hundreds of years. Why haven't we adapted? Is it because it's you know so simple and we kind of attach one person, one vote and we see something legitimate in that? Uh, but yeah, maybe you can dig in and tell us about a few of these other systems and, and what you see in them. Sure. So one idea that's, that's been implemented many times now in the US and lots of other countries, it's known as a deliberative opinion poll. So this is to be contrasted with an ordinary public opinion poll. So in an ordinary public opinion poll, you get a random sample of the population, whether you reach them uh, you know, through phone or through like an internet panel or you know, some method where you contact people, and you ask them some questions about politics. You know, hey, so you think we should raise the minimum wage to $15? Or do you think we need stronger efforts on uh, climate change? Or do you think we need um, um, you know, restrictions on gun uh, on guns, such that we like uh, you know ban assault weapons or, or, or you know some sort of uh, gun control proposal. So you just ask people questions about political issues, and then you just tally up the results, and then you can say like, well, you know, fifty percent of people want X or seventy percent or whatever it is. You just you just report the results. So that's an opinion poll. Um, the opinion poll has a lot of uh, problems. Um, even assuming you do get a random sample, so that's truly a cross-section of the population, that's one challenge, but even assuming you do meet that barrier, you still got the problem of have people really thought about this matter before, because maybe they're just kind of making up answers on the spot and they don't really know what they truly think, or maybe they actually think something. It's just, uh, if they haven't been paying much attention, then their opinions are pretty raw. And would you want to put a lot of stock in, in raw opinions, that, that might make you, you a little bit nervous to say like, well, 70% of Americans want us to do X, we better do X because that's what democracy means. So the, the deliberative opinion poll tries to improve upon that by instead of uh, just asking people their opinion on an issue where they're all atomized individuals, instead you bring people together, you have them talk about the issue ahead of time and that they, they, de they deliberate. So that hence the term deliberative opinion poll. So they um, they talk with each other. They talk with um, experts on the, on the subject. So they they like gather information. They um, so so typically when these are done, it might take place say over a day or over a weekend. And um, you know you you generally would pay people to come. So it's it's kind of like jury duty. And um, you would you'd come and you would uh, discuss the matter with with other people. You would get to learn about it. And sometimes people will change their mind over the course of, say, the weekend, where you're having a discussion about a particular issue. And then instead of taking um, just their raw opinions, now when you ask them after, after they've deliberated, you have more confidence that whatever people say, it's, it's not their raw opinion. It's a more refined opinion where they've learned from other people who were you know, participating in the deliberation, they've gathered information, They've had a chance for, for reflection. So this is the kind of reform that uh, you know, can be implemented. It's, it's, it's been, been done a lot of times. And when you, when you do this, you get a more refined view of, quote, what the public wants than in a, a regular opinion poll. That's fascinating. Um, I spoke to uh, Glenn Whale, who is um, 
founder of Radical Exchange, um, a nonprofit that has all kind of like radical reform ideas. And uh, one of uh, their ideas is called um, a quadratic voting, which is effectively a measure, uh, a tool where people, you can think about it as having like a finite number of votes that they can allocate um, across a range of issues. And so if you really care about one issue, you can put all your marbles on, on red on that one issue. However, the idea with quadratic voting being that um, the more votes you put on one uh, specific issue, the less, the, the lower the cumulative impact of, of that is. So you get a more accurate representation of like how much people actually care about different issues, right? Because if I care really strongly about one issue, but I also care about some other issues, then I can't just say, um, I have super strong opinion on all these issues to the same extent. No, I have to like um, really, you know, household and, and think about, okay, how do I allocate this to best uh, represent myself? And I really think that those kind of tools combined with the idea of a deliberative opinion poll could theoretically become another branch of government, if you will, right? And it doesn't even necessarily have to be all that complicated to, to organize because you could organize it digitally. Right, like you were saying, you were comparing it to jury duty, but it really, what stands in the way of us just, um, you know, every year as a society, you know, drafting X amount of people to to be assembled in in a in an additional um, institution or a branch of government, and not really having any direct power, but just having the the opportunity to to sort of aggregate opinions and uh, public <laughs> reports or something along those lines. Yeah, um, that would that's kind of the, the next step up in the deliberative opinion poll, where you're, you're you're still randomly selecting people, and then you're offering them an invitation to come and participate in this institution, which, as you would say, becomes a formal part of government. And then the assumption is, whatever they talk about and recommend, it would have some sort of normative force that it it might actually kind of shape the agenda, and if like the formal decision making bodies. We're totally ignoring what this, you know, cross-section of citizens, just regular Joes and Janes off the street, what, what they are recommending, um, then, then I think the assumption is the, the formal institutions would sort of look bad. They would lose credibility. So there would be an incentive for the formal institutions to pay attention to what this randomly selected body of, of citizens um, was, was recommending. So um, I think that um, kind of institution has, has a lot of promise because it really would be a, a, a cross-section of, of the public. Now, it would require a greater commitment than, say, a deliberative opinion poll. With a deliberative opinion poll, you know, it's, uh, you give up your weekend. Like, eh, a lot of people are like, you know, I don't really want to give up my weekend, but, you know, you give people 100 bucks or something, and they're like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do it for $100. And uh, so you could actually recruit people. But there's a lot of people for which, suppose this really was a formal government institution, and you have to give up your job for like six months to like go and be part of this body. Well, I mean, some jobs, I, I guess you maybe, you, you know, could pass a law that every employer has to take the people back afterwards. So I, I think you'd have to manage that. But like, what if you're in a career where if you're kind of out of the loop for six months, like your skills atrophy and like some of your, you know, your connections or, I mean, I, I can imagine there'd be a problem with some certain, if, if, if you no longer get a, a random sample, a cross-section, so if certain kinds of people are systematically likely to say, yes, I want to be in this body, and certain kinds of people are systematically likely to say, no, sorry, I can't go and do that for six months, then you've kind of cut off one of the big goals, which is 
for it to like be the voice of the public. It's normally the voice of the public if certain kinds of people participate and certain kinds of people don't. So that that's one dilemma that has to be solved. But you know, I think I think in principle it it, it probably could be solved. And, and if you do that, that's a way to bring individual citizen deliberation into the formal institutions of government, even though that that this this particular institution wouldn't have decision making authority, it would still be there as an institution. And that'd be quite different from what we have now. What we have now is you get a chance to vote for people. Well, voting is great, but what about in between elections? And what about hearing like the more ongoing voice of the public? Because a lot of decisions get made. Well, I, I guess essentially all decisions get made in between elections and that, you know, election day isn't directly tied to any governmental decision. And so um, with a body like this, you have a chance to bring the voice of the public into the governmental arena. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I, it brings up two thoughts, and I'll let Nicholas take um, aim at the agenda setting portion of this, because this all this comes back to is that somebody else has sort of set the agenda, and then we bring in people to deliberate and decide, but there is still this over-encompassing uh, ability to decide what they're deciding on, right, that we get back to. And I know Nicholas has a couple of questions about that. But one other thing I wanted to ask was kind of just the legitimacy of simple systems and these alternative systems. And I know you mentioned decline in trust in institutions and politicians, and we have all seen kind of the sclerotic nature of, of American democracy in recent years. And I'm wondering if you think that this has gotten to the point where people are genuinely ready to try some sort of radical alternative like this. And perhaps you don't see this as radical, but do you think there is the appetite, the political appetite for this to be feasible within the next I don't know, 10, 20 years. I guess if there was a you know, betting market on it, I would not invest money in this likelihood of, of coming into, in, into being. But that's really the case for all political reforms until they happen. And there, there are organizations working in the area of deliberative democracy that are, that are pushing this idea and, and others. And, and it, it does have the advantage that there's no obvious partisan leaning to it. Because if you go to you know, the, the Red Tribe and say, how about we give the people more power? They're going to say, yeah, yeah. The problems with you know politicians, the elites, they're they're running things. Then you go to the blue tribe, blue tribe. How about if we give people more power? Like the problem is the politicians and the elites are running things. Yeah, yeah. We need to give the people more more power. So in principle, this is the kind of reform that that that, that could be popular across the board. Um, so that would overcome one potential uh, challenge and. Um, you know, you you might you to do it at the in the U.S. at the at the federal level, you probably need a constitutional amendment to create like a new. Well, I don't know. Maybe I could get some some constitutional law scholars in here. Could could say the U.S. Congress create this? Could they could they create an advisory body? Yeah, I guess they, I guess they probably could because this body, at the end of the day, it would be only advisory. So how how is it any different than than uh, the Congress like? having a, a committee hearing, and then they invite people to testify. Like, well, there's nothing in the Constitution that says, you know, Congress can create uh, committees that invite people to, to testify, um, but it's, 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 it's like consistent with the Constitution, even though the Constitution doesn't explicitly spell it out. So I guess con Congress could create this sort of advisory body. They could, they could fund it, and they could um, commit themselves to giving the body a chance to work and to make recommendations. And then Congress may or may not um, accept those. Now this would does sort of point to an immediate problem. Like 
does Congress want to create a body that's going to tell it what to do or even advise it what to do? Eh, probably not, but it's at least possible. Yeah, so I'm on the one hand extremely excited about these kind of opportunities. On the other hand, um, I'm by nature very skeptical. Uh, so let me just ask, what do you think is exactly the problem that would be solved by these kind of um, reforms? Because we started out by saying people are dissatisfied uh, very often with a lot of the institutions that they're finding uh, themselves around at the moment. What exactly are we solving if we make it, uh, if we create institutions of the kind that we've been discussing? Um, one of the big problems that we're solving is, is, is the information problem. So there, there, there is this big chunk of people that we talked about before that aren't paying much attention uh, to politics. But if you were to try to do some sort of deliberative body, and it really was a cross-section of the public, you would pull in some of those people that right now aren't paying much attention. So they would start to become engaged because they're a part of this delib deliberative body. And so, so we would in a sense, start to hear their voices, whereas right now, you know, they're... Um, it, it's like something like, I don't, I don't know what the exact figure is, but maybe like 10% of Americans are on Twitter. But Twitter really kind of drives the national political um, conversation. And if you had one of these deliberative bodies, it's not just the people who've sort of self-selected into to being one of those uh, people who's a high, high engager. It would, it would be uh, a cross-section of the public. So you get, um, you get broader participation. But then another thing you get is, is, is better information in the hands of, of at, least, at least the deliberative body because they would have actually the time to do it. You know, right now, a lot of people, they're juggling you know, work and, and, and family and, you know, maybe they have, you know, illness or like, like there's just a lot of competing demands on, on, uh, on people's time. But suppose you sort of take the work out of the equation, you, you pay them. The family's going to be a little tougher because uh, if you were to like say, be part of this advisory body, but you had family commitments at home. How, how's that going to work? So that would be a little tougher to, to manage. But um, if you could manage those uh, difficulties, then you give these people who right now aren't paying much attention to politics, you give them a chance to learn and to, to grow and to actually develop their views. They probably have views right now. It's just linking back to what we talked about earlier. They're very raw. Uh, instead of having like the, a raw opinion, well, if you're part of one of these advisory bodies, you develop a refined opinion. And wouldn't we rather know what people think that the government ought to do after having a chance to deliberate rather than just whatever is their raw opinion? So I think it's solving the, an information problem, getting more information to people. And, and then a second uh, problem it's solving is um, a, uh, a broader distribution. So right now we have a certain set of voices that are out there. They tend to be the people who are really interested and they're polarized and they're the people on Twitter. But if we have these deliberative body, we get a, a cross section of the whole public so that the whole, the whole, uh, the voice is more representative. So I'd say those are really the two, the two main problems to be solved an information problem and a representative representativeness problem. So I think that's fascinating. I think in the United States context, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, we, we did mention at the beginning, we were going to broaden this. Uh, we haven't really done that. So maybe I can ask you one quick question, how this applies outside the United States. So sometimes when I am working in Sub-Saharan Africa, I hear people say, you know, democracy is great, but we need it to be African democracy, or we need it to be Ghanaian democracy, or Burkina Faso in democracy. In places where the context is different, perhaps 
there is a more homogenous population or perhaps opinion is you know, less variegated. Do you think that deliberation is as necessary for democracy to function? Or do you think that this is a product of some set of cultural circumstances where deliberation is not as central to other forms of democracy and democracy can still function in other contexts? Yeah, I, I think I know what you're getting at. Um, I would say, generally speaking, the more homogenous the, the unit, so it could be like you know a neighborhood, a city, a you know, state, province, or, or a country, the, the more homogenous the unit, in a way, the less need you have for deliberation. Because if people kind of see things the same way at the start, well, just pick some people, put them in charge, and they'll probably do stuff that is broadly acceptable to the people in that area. But if you have a lot of diversity, like a country like the US, you know, 330 million people, uh, different, different races, religions, uh, you know, socioeconomic classes, um, divisions along you know, rural and urban and, and uh, political affiliations and lots of other things. Uh, because of that diversity, if who is making the decisions has a really big effect on what the decisions will be. And so you, it, it, the, the more diverse the, the, the population, I think the greater the need for deliberation because you have uh, the potential problems with both information and representativeness. So you want to make sure people are engaged and you want to make sure you're getting a voice that's a, that's a real cross-section of the public rather than just a, a, a narrow body that is kind of self-selected and um, you know, makes their voice heard. So um, if, uh, you know, but, but you know, diversity, that's, that, that's like not a distinctly American thing. Like, you know, a lot of African you know, countries would have, uh, you know, differing, differing uh, you know, ethnic groups and, and so on. And, and that can be real strong uh, divisions, political divisions along those lines. So I would say that some of the same need for deliberation would would occur in a system like that, where you do have people that are uh, you know have some some pre-existing commitments. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I think you're exactly right. I mean, many African countries are even more diverse than the United States, um, and you actually see higher rates of participation in places like South Africa, where people are very politically engaged. So it, it depends on the context, but I I do think that's a fascinating angle to look at it. Perfect, Mark. Where can people find out more about deliberative democracy? Well, there's a lot of scholars who've, who've written about it, but um, the one place that is probably most accessible is I'm going to recommend an organization that's called America Speaks, and it's um, it's one word, so no space between America and, and the Speaks, and it's a uh, it's a nonprofit, uh, you know, non governmental organization that really works in this area of, of deliberative democracy, and it tries to uh, promote various various reforms, bringing the people together for for, for town meetings, for facilitated discussions um, along the deliberative lines that we've been we've been talking about. So I think the people that are interested uh, check out America Speaks and uh, some of their some of their work. Terrific, Mark Smith. Thank you so much. Sure thing. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wittstock. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.